turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke. Praise to the God who reigns above. The Gospel of Luke is the collection of eyewitness testimonies that speak of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Up to chapter 19, we have seen Jesus warn the people about the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. Many people turned away from their godless living, forsaking all to follow Jesus. He taught them about God's kingdom and what life in that kingdom would look like on earth. All people were curious about Jesus and the wonderful, miraculous things he did. Jesus knew that his hour was coming to be betrayed, battered, and bruised for the sake of the world. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, while people laid down palm branches. The king had come, but not in the way the Jews had thought. We join Pastor Will in Luke chapter 19, verse 41. Jesus, when this event is over, he continues down the Mount of Olives with the procession. But when he was come near, verse 41, he beheld the city and wept over it. When you reach the bottom of the slope of the Mount of Olives, the city again spreads out before you in a panoramic view. And, and the Temple Mount now is right in front of you. I mean, it's, you see it right there. I remember when we were in the, in the gardens, the Olive Gardens there, that one of them might have been you know, Gethsemane. When you're in there and, and you look up, I mean, it's the first thing you see. I mean, you could see where Jesus would have seen the guys coming down with torches as they were coming to arrest him you know, from the Temple Mount. So again, it's a, a panoramic view, and he's got it right in front of him. And it says when he was come near, and he beholds it, he just stops. And he looks at the city, and it says that he wept over it. Literally, it means he burst into tears. This is audible and visible weeping. This is not getting choked up a bit. This is not a tear coming down his eye. This is not feeling a little bit of emotion. This is audible and visible weeping. He stops and he weeps, bursts into tears. Why? It's often said that these same people crying Hosanna today were crying crucify him a week later. That is simply not true. Jesus had support behind him. These people were Galileans. They were his disciples. These people, even though they weren't there for him during the crucifixion and they scattered because they were afraid, they never cried out, crucify him. Support was behind him, but ahead of him, that's where the opposition lay. People of Jerusalem never accepted Jesus and soon they would call for his death. And the judgment that they would experience for doing so, for rejecting their own Messiah, broke our Lord's heart. He said, there as he's weeping, he says, if you had known, even you, at least in this, your day, the things which belong unto your peace, but now they are hid from your eyes. The word if there, it's, it's Greek has something different than English. We don't have this. But they have four different ways you can say if, and this is the if of unrealized wishes or frustrated desire. You know, if you've ever, man, if you just do your chores, everything would be easier, you know? It's kind of like that. 
without maybe our human sinful frustration. But he is, doesn't want this for them. He doesn't want judgment for them. He wants peace. Jesus' offer of the kingdom was real. When he came offering and teaching about the kingdom to them, it was a real deal. It wasn't like Jesus came down and goes, now nah, I gotta die for everybody's sins, but I'll, I'll offer the kingdom because I have to do that because I'm the Messiah. It was a real offer. But you know what? It wasn't just the Jews. It was neither Jew or Gentile who would have him as king. Do you remember when he was brought before Pilate? We always want to blame the Jews. They crucified their Messiah. Remember he was brought before Pilate? Pilate didn't have a good relationship with his king. Eventually, Caesar banished Pilate to Gaul where he died. So, I mean, they didn't have a good relationship with his king. But he comes to Jesus and he goes, listen, he goes, are you, are you a king? Are you the king of Israel? And Jesus just said to me, he goes, did you figure this out yourself or did other people tell it to you about me? He goes, what do I care? He goes, you people, I don't know why they, why did they bring you here? Why, why are they upset to you? Are you king or not? And Jesus goes, you say correctly that I'm a king. But my kingdom's not of this world because if it was, my servants would fight and you couldn't do anything to stop them. My kingdom is now in the hearts of those who embrace the truth I teach. That's a pretty cool moment for Pilate, isn't it? <laughs> that sounds a little bit better than Caesar. That guy hates me. But how does Pilate respond? The famous answer, what is truth? And that's it, trial over. Who cares about that? That wasn't worthy of kingship to him. It wasn't worthy of following to him. It wasn't just the Jews. Neither Jew nor Gentile would have Jesus as king. And so as he rides in here, he says, if you had known, it means to understand or comprehend the significance of something. What the significance of what? This, your day, that this day was here. Remember earlier I said how things are better when you understand the scriptures? Well, things are really bad if you don't, <laughs> you know? These guys didn't understand the scripture. They didn't know their own scripture. So Jesus says, you don't know what the peace I want to offer to you. Now it's hid from your eyes. It's invisible to you. What does it mean that it was invisible to them? Did God hide it from them? No. On an earlier trip to Jerusalem, Jesus explained this inability to see the truth. In John 9, verses 39 through 41, after the man who was born blind, this poor guy, Jesus heals him. They put him on trial, excommunicate him. Then he goes and he finds, Jesus goes and finds him. Everybody else had kicked him out. Poor guy had been blind his whole life. Now he's healed and they excommunicate him because he won't deny Christ. Jesus goes and finds him. And this guy's born again, saved, going to heaven. But while all this occurs, Jesus makes this statement. And Jesus said in John 9, 39, for judgment I am coming to this world. They which see not might see and that they which see might be made blind. Now some of the Pharisees which were with him, they heard him say this and they gathered. He's not talking about physical blindness. He's talking about spiritual blindness. And so they said, are we blind too? And here's Jesus' answer. If you were blind, then you should have no sin. If you recognize your own spiritual blindness and your need for a savior, your need for me, you'd be fine. But now you say, we see, we've got it figured out. We're good. We don't need a savior. Therefore, your sin remains. You're still blind. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. It's been hid from your eyes. You, you, you refuse to confess your need. You think you see fine, so you can't see anything. Jesus needed to die on the cross for our sins. But that doesn't remove the guilt of those who would turn him over to the Romans. Because of what they would do, God would leave them to their own devices, would eventually leave to what Jesus sees here happening to them. For he says, the day is, verse 43, for the day shall come upon you that your enemies shall cast a trench about you 
compass you around and keep you in on every side. They're going to lay siege to you. And they shall lay you even with the ground. They're going to raise the city to the ground. And your children within you, 1.1 million Jews, would die when the Roman armies did this in 70 AD. And they shall not leave on you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. The word their visitation means the arrival of divine power. They did not recognize that Jesus, the Son of God, was in their midst just as the Old Testament prophesied. And in 66 AD, Jerusalem, zealots rioted, took control of the city from the Romans. But four years later, Titus brought 70,000 troops and laid siege to the city. Four months later, there wasn't a stone remaining. 1.1 million Jews were killed. 97,000 were enslaved. And that is why Jesus wept here. On some occasions, I see Christians cheer when God's judgment falls on wicked people. Do you see Jesus' response when he saw God's judgment upon wicked people? He wept. Listen, being a biblical man or biblical manhood is not just having courageous compliance to God's word. It's also being confidently compassionate towards the lost. What do you mean by confidently compassionate? Well, it means we don't compromise what God says about right and wrong. We don't compromise judgment. We don't not talk about hell. We don't not talk about sin. But it means that our hearts break for the lost, even as we do so. You can scream through a megaphone and go, you're going to hell. I'm not really sure that's exactly what Jesus did. You can still say the truth, but do it with compassion in your heart. And I have found much more often that when I'm telling somebody the truth, I'll tell people, I say, listen, Jesus said, unless you repent, you're going to perish but they see in my heart that I say it because I care about them and don't want them to perish? Like you read about some people. <sighs> the Bible says there's one judge, even God, so it's not my job to call for the death of certain individuals who are living wickedly. It's my job to be brokenhearted over the fact that they're already under God's wrath. They don't need mine. If someone is rebelling against God, living their own way, Jesus in John chapter four said that the wrath of God abides upon them already already abides upon them. They don't need my wrath. And the Bible says that the wrath of man doesn't bring about the righteousness of God. So it doesn't work. On the other hand, if I'm pleading with people to repent, because if you don't, you're going to perish, and I don't want you to, that has a different effect. So we need to be confident in the truth, confident in how we get to heaven, you know, and, and that there is a hell, there is right, there is wrong, the cross is the only way. We need to be confident in that, but compassionate when we share it, when we pray for others. That's what a biblical man does. Now, when Jesus is done weeping, he enters the city and he heads straight for the temple because there's work to be done and there's wrongs to be righted. Look at verse 45. And he went into the temple and he began to cast out them that sold therein and them that bought, saying unto them, it is written, my house is the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And once they're all gone, it says he taught daily in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people, they sought to destroy him, but they could not find what they might do for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Jesus cast out those not just who sold there, but also those who bought. The word there, cast out, means to make someone leave by force. I don't think Jesus came in and said, hey, everybody, you know, this is not right. We, you, know, you need to think about this and realize what you're doing is wrong and we need to make some change. No, I don't know what he did this time, but I know three years earlier when he started his ministry, the Bible says he took a whip, took a whip of thongs and he caused people to leave by force. That was not a decorative whip, all right? He was hitting people. 
out of here. Take your doves with you. Take your money with you. The only thing different this time is he kicked out those who were buying. Why buying? Because he didn't want anybody there who wasn't there for why they should be there. It was to be a place of prayer. See, the priests, they had conspired with the merchants to extort money from worshipers by not approving any sacrificial animals that people would bring for the high holy days. You could not offer something to God that had a blemish. You know, if it had an injury or if it had a bad attitude or whatever, you could not bring that animal to the Lord. You know, some of you, you may have had pets that are friendly or maybe you've got that bird that bites everybody in sight. Well, tough luck. If you had that bird back then, you're stuck with him. You can't give him to God because he doesn't want him either. obviously to foreshadow the sinless lamb of God who would take away our sins, right? So here you'd be a good Jew. You take this lamb and he's got to stay with you for a certain amount of days. I think it's 10, 14 days. Can't remember exactly. And for those days, you have to observe him, make sure he doesn't have any health issues, any bad attitude, whatever, you know? You've got to make sure he's without blemish. So here you now, you've figured out he's good. And then you bring him up to the temple. And the priest goes, oh, I see you've got your Passover lamb. And I say, yep, I'm all excited. He stayed in our house all this time. Well, let me just take one final look at him because that's what they were supposed to do. But see, what they had conspired to do is they'd always find something wrong. They'd go, I don't know. This guy looks, looks kind of ornery. You sure he's bl- without blemish? Well, yeah, he's been fine the whole time. Kids love him. I don't know, man. He's giving me the evil eye. Can't take him. What am I supposed to do now? I I mean, I I don't have 14 days to have another one. What do I do? Well, you're in luck. We've got some pre-approved here lambs that have been observed for the last 14 days for $99.99 plus shipping and handling. And you're stuck. Josephus said that these pre-approved lambs would be 20 times the price of a lamb inside the city. They were making money off of it. And when the Lord began his ministry in John chapter 2, he drove these guys out of the temple. But guess what? Three years later, they're back. They're back. Which means not just that they came back, but no one stopped them from coming back. No one went in and go, what are we doing? No, get out of here. Jesus was here yesterday. Well, I'm here today. Get out. That's not what this is for. This is for prayer. Not to take advantage of people. Get out. No one stopped them. See, Jesus was as equally angry with those who were extorting people as he was from those who tolerated it. Why? Well, guess where these guys set up their little merchant area? In the court of the Gentiles. You ever been to an open market? How easy would it be to pray in a place like that? To get alone with God? To spend time with him? Nigh impossible. So where did the Gentiles have to go to worship God? Nowhere. Nowhere. Israel had shut them out. See, Luke here, he just paraphrases the full quote, which is from Isaiah chapter 56. Turn there with me real quick. Isaiah 56. God telling Israel to do what's right, to keep justice, to keep his laws, to keep his ways. He refers now to those who are foreigners who are doing so. In Isaiah 56 verse 6, he says also, the sons of the stranger, the foreigner, that join themselves to the Lord. These are non-Jews. To serve him and to love the name of the Lord. To be his servants. Everyone that keeps the Sabbath from polluting it and takes hold of my covenant. Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. 
Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer. And here's the part Luke doesn't say. For what? All people. Not just the Jews. Not just Israel. See, this wasn't just extortion. It was the toleration of obstacles to people coming to God. And let me tell you something. A biblical man not only has that courageous compliance to God's word no matter what, not only does he have a confident compassion toward the lost, but he has an uncompromising commitment to do what's right no matter what. Jesus did it here because what they'd been doing to the Gentiles who wanted to worship the Lord, who wanted to be those who kept his covenant and obeyed his laws was wrong. A biblical man refuses to compromise when it comes to his commitment to right, even if it's his own expense and it puts himself at risk. And so I ask you this morning, do you stand up for others when they are wronged? And do you put your well-being at risk so that others can come to the Lord, that you can remove obstacles to them coming to Christ? Jesus, he boldly, he just teaches there in the temple daily. He says, I'm not going anywhere. I'm gonna do what's right. But the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people, they sought to destroy him. The word that means they kept on trying to find ways to kill him. But they couldn't find what they might do because all the people were very attentive to hear him. It means they hung on his every word. Arresting Jesus publicly right now would have created an uproar with the people. That's why they later arrest him at night. In fact, when Jesus is on trial, he asks them this very question. He goes, if I'm so evil, why didn't you arrest me while I taught in the temple in the open? And the answer, of course, is because Jesus wasn't evil. He was good. He was a good man the way we should be. Now, that phrase, he's a good man, unfortunately, I think has been redefined a little bit in our day. And I want to read to you, it's a long quote, so you're going to have to bear with me. But Greg Morse wrote an article on biblical manhood entitled, Not Safe, But Good. And I want to share some of it with you. He said, when you consider a good Christian husband, an upstanding churchman, a godly man, what qualities come to your mind? Traits such as generous, thoughtful, and agreeable? Of course. Is this man slow to impose, quick to listen, and ready to sympathize? Of course. Does he speak gently and serve graciously? That should be something you should look for. Does he routinely defer to others' preferences? That's Christ-like. He says, something about that ideal seems unquestionably right. But if this tender side is all it should also strike us as uncomfortably wrong. Godly men will indeed emanate compassion, humility, service, and love. But when we teach about masculinity to do qualities like strength, initiative, zeal, and courage also make our list. When we assess men for church office or when we look for small group leaders and godly mentors, do we commend men who would make good shepherds? Those who are industrious, passionate, resilient men who are able to corral sheep and willing to combat wolves? Do we celebrate male strength, courage, zeal, and initiative because we know that these are required in order to guard, protect, subdue, and lead? 
He said, our present ideals do not require goodness to make men safe because they ensure that men are safe regardless of goodness. The man reborn in this image says nothing uncomfortable, rallies no charge, and shows little, if any, initiative. He is goaded to be convictionless, passionless, perhaps even Christless, as long as he's subdued. But such is not the vision of he who made man. Instead of blunting man's sharp edges, which we have them, guys, God has a different solution for creating good men. Rebirth, looking to Christ, and training in righteousness. Godliness must balance his natural perils. He achieves mature manhood through adding the fruit of the Spirit, not by subtracting his God-designed nature. Kindness, self-control, compassion, flavor his strength, courage, determination, they do not eclipse them. He asks the question, have we chosen the convenience of niceness over the discomforts of godliness? He said, I fear someday, lying comfortably beneath the inscription, here lies a father, husband, churchgoer, just a really nice guy. Because nice says nothing of spine, of edge, of valor, and thus it can say little of righteousness or purpose. Nice requires no courage, no conviction, and no willingness to make enemies with the wicked. And Jesus warns against such palatability when he said in Luke 6, 26, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Men of God are not nice. (laughs) We are good. Do you understand the difference? We're not nice. We are good. As The fawn told, Mr. Tumnus told Lucy, he's not a tame lion, but he's good, right? Yes. Not safe, but good. I don't want my kids to feel safe. I I want them to have sense, you know. Dad's going to be upset if I do that. But I want them to know they're loved and that they can come to me when they do blow it. That's what they need to know, that I'm good. Not that I'm nice or safe. I'll leave you with this quote from Charles Spurgeon. This is what a real man is. He said, Jesus is the most magnanimous of captains. There never was his like among the choicest of princes. He is always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. When the wind blows cold, he always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. And if he bids us carry a burden, he carries it also. If there is anything that is gracious, generous, kind, and tender, yet lavish and superabundant in love, you will always find it in him. Let's be men like that. If you're a dad here today, let's let our sons and our daughters see men like that. Amen? Amen. As the worship team comes on up, you know, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, you know, I realize I talked a lot to men today, but if you're here today and don't know the Lord, Listen, the best dad out there is, needs to be your dad. The Bible says, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus, the best man, he wants to be everything to you. But you've got to come to him and confess your sin, confess your need for a savior. And the Bible says that if you do that, you turn from your sin, give your life to him, you'll be saved. He'll wash away all your sins. He'll make you a child of God. 
So if you have never done that today, come to your heavenly father and make this his best father's day in his relationship with you. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. It teaches us what it means to be a godly man, teaches us what it means to be a godly dad. We thank you for the example of righteousness that you gave to us, Lord, and of compassion, of majesty, Lord, but also humility, of truth, but also grace. You are full of all of it, Lord. Not a little bit of this and a little bit of that, Lord. You're full of all of it. And Lord, we desperately need your help to be Christians who are the same. Lord, as fathers and men, we desperately need your help because we so easily swing to one side or the other. Either we're, we're too gruff and too, too worldly manly-like or we're, Lord, too much like the world wants us to be today and have no spine. Help us to be like you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jesus did not shy away from adversity. He did all that God had commanded. He did what was good and right, despite the cost. We ought to be people who do the same, obeying God's word regardless of what it will cost us. The call to follow after Jesus is death to self, but in doing so, we will find everything we ever wanted. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.